The reading is from John chapter one, beginning at one. <clears throat> in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him and without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and lived amongst us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. John testified to him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks ahead of me because he was before me. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. Amen. I do love Christina Rossetti's poetry. Uh, I remember studying Goblin Market at university. I don't know if you've ever read it. It, it passes itself off as a, a children's book, but the moment you start delving into the themes, you realize uh, it, it's really quite adult in many ways. And of course, she also wrote my favorite Christmas carol, which we're not singing this year, uh, sadly, um, in the bleak midwinter. But I think her, her hymn, little one we had there, Love Came Down at Christmas, Love All Lovely, Love Divine, captures something of the mystery of the prologue of John's Gospel. And that's why I, I wanted us to sing that one this morning, following on from that wonderful reading. And thank you, Hazel, for that. Um, but staying perhaps with Christina Rossetti's uh, Goblin Market themes, which are a little bit more uh, adult, uh, a little bit more gendered. Uh, I, I wonder if you've ever heard of the um, Jesus is my girlfriend critique of contemporary worship songs. It suggests that you take a song or a hymn and you try substituting the name Jesus with the name of your significant other. And if the song still makes sense, then maybe it's not such a great worship song. It's easy to do. You can certainly have some fun with it. Uh, and it's, it reminds me of being a teenager uh, when I discovered the first line index in the back of the hymn book. Um, it turns out that if you only read the first line, 
Some favourite hymns or songs sound an awful lot more lewd than the author ever intended. Again, I'll leave you to have some fun with that if you want to do so. And I mention all of this not to be disrespectful to contemporary worship. There are some fantastic modern hymns, and I think we should learn more of them at Bloomsbury, and I hope that we will. But I mention it because it raises for us questions around gender and sexuality and God, and particularly the gender of God as God is made known in Jesus. And the thing is, this matters. Because for most of its history, the church, the body of Christ, has been a patriarchal institution. From male-only priesthoods, to the idea that the husband is the head of the wife, to the denial of contraception and abortion to women, to the contemporary complementarian ideals perpetuated in the ever so popular biblical womanhood movement. The church has a woeful history of prioritizing masculinity and denigrating femininity. And so much of this owes its origin to the fact that the baby Jesus was a boy. The logic goes, if Jesus, born in a stable, is God incarnate, and if Jesus is a male child, then the logic of the millennia has asserted, God must also, therefore, be understood as male. And particularly notable for us today in terms of patriarchal legacy is the fact that many of the early church fathers based their theology of male headship on the language of word-made flesh that we find in our assigned reading from the prologue to John's Gospel. So here I'm afraid I need to introduce you to a word from ancient Greek, but that's okay because we're all experts in classical Greek now, thanks to the naming convention adopted by the COVID-19 variants of concern. Now, admittedly, a global pandemic wasn't precisely how I wanted the world to learn biblical Greek, but I will take what I can get. Anyway, the word that I want us to learn this morning is the word logos. And perhaps ironically, the meaning of this word logos is in fact word. Logos is the ancient Greek term for a word, for a thing uttered in speech or language. And we meet this word, this logos, in two key areas from our reading for this morning. Verse one, in the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. And then we get it again in verse 14. And the Logos became flesh and lived among us. And the thing is, in ancient Greek, Logos was a masculine word. But not in the rather simplistic way in which, for example, in French, you know, a car is female, but an apple tree is male. Rather, in the ancient Greek world, the task of Logos, the task of uttering or speaking truth, was a male domain. 
It was the men who spoke, the men who articulated thought. Women were considered to be merely those who echoed the logos uttered by the men. The philosopher Aristotle, who lived some 400 years before the writing of John's gospel, had used this word logos to describe the rhetorical technique of reasoned discourse, the act of constructing a logical argument. And this was something which he saw as a male task, arising from what he believed were inherent masculine characteristics. And here we are two and a half thousand years later, and we still play to this, don't we? You know, this idea that the men are the logical ones and the women are the feeling ones. I mean, what nonsense. But anyway, that comes from Aristotle. And then building on this, the Stoic philosophers of the ancient Greek world had taught that the speaking of reason and logic, the delivery of logos, was the act of speaking order into a chaotic world. And for them, the universe only made sense because the reason and logic of the Logos, which they saw as an almost divine word that brought order, was spoken into an otherwise chaotic world. And so these ancient Greek concepts of, that lie behind this word Logos, of it being male, of it being logical, of it being almost divine, these dominated the thought world in which Christianity grew and developed as Christianity moved from being a Hebrew breakaway religion into being a religion of the Greek and Latin speaking world. And they became fused, these ideas, with the way in which the early church sought to understand the prologue to John's gospel. So when we hear of a Logos made flesh, or of a Logos which was in the beginning with God and which was God. What happened, perhaps predictably, was that God, the originator of this divine word, this divine Logos, came to be understood as inherently male, inherently rational. God was the man who spoke order into chaos and logic into irrationality. And what God spoke, according to John's gospel, was Jesus. The baby boy born in the manger was the word incarnate, who became the man who then called 12 male disciples. Well, today I want us to begin to pick apart this language and heritage of patriarchy. And I want us to start to see that God is not so easily defined as male. Today's sermon is actually the beginning of a new series on John's gospel, which we will be following through the story of Jesus' life using this gospel up to Easter. And it's important to us to think about this foundational issue of gender. Because as we will discover in the coming months, the story of Jesus in the fourth gospel consistently and persistently challenges the gender-based hierarchies that dominated the ancient world and which continue to dominate our world today. Well, it won't have escaped anyone's attention that gender is less easily defined 
than you might at first think. Biologically, of course, it's reasonably straightforward. The presence of a Y chromosome will trigger the development of a male, and its absence will trigger the development of a female. However, whilst biological sex is, with some rare exceptions, easy enough to test for, gender is something far more complex. And those who study these things recognize that gender is a construct that overlays our underlying biology. At a simple level, for example, there is no biological reason why men should wear trousers and women should wear skirts. In fact, in some countries, men wear skirts too. And similarly, these days in our country, in our culture, there is nothing unusual in women wearing trousers. However, if I had come into this pulpit this morning wearing a dress, you might wonder what I was trying to say about my understanding of my gender. Unless, of course, that dress was a clerical dress, in which case you might wonder why I'd suddenly gone all Anglican on you. You see, even at the level of what we wear, gender is fluid. It is non-defined. And you can write this across other areas of our being, from speech patterns, to movement, to occupation. And whilst some of us find that our biological sex and our gender identity feel in harmony, others find that their gender identity is more diverse, more fluid, less binary than male or female. And so we have a glorious set of words that have emerged to describe people's understanding and experience of who they are. And I'm not going to try and define these for us today because I do want to get back to John's Gospel. But as we do so, I'd like us to hold in our minds the fact that the concepts of male and female are not always experienced in the same way by different people. And so any overarching framework that seeks to define what it must be to be male or what it must be to be female is likely to be experienced as oppressive by those who don't fit that particular definition. So back to logos, this ancient Greek term for masculine rationality, which came to define the Christian understanding of a male god, of a male priesthood, and of a patriarchal authority structure that existed within both society and the home. And here we need to depart from the world of Greek thought. And remember that the fourth gospel, although it was written in Greek, was written by someone who was thoroughly Jewish. And we need to remember that the thought world of John's gospel owes at least as much to the Hebrew Bible as it does to Aristotle and the Stoics. The clue here is in the opening words of the gospel, which echo the opening words of the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created. The book of Genesis begins. John's gospel. In the beginning was the Logos. The author of John's gospel is wanting his readers to make a connection between the story of God speaking creation into being 
separating light from darkness and declaring it good. And the story he is seeking to tell about the word made flesh that is the light shining in the darkness of the world. But of course, the creation story from Genesis isn't just about the mechanics of creating the cosmos. It's also a story about the creation of humans. Listen to these couple of verses from the book of Genesis. Firstly, chapter 1, verse 27. So, God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created the male and female. He created them. And then chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. When God created humankind, he made them in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named them humankind when they were created. And here we need to notice something significant about gender. And it is this. There is diversity of gender within God. And this then is reflected in the diversity of gender that we find amongst humans. Genesis does not describe an unambiguously male God. Male and female humans are created in the image of God. God is not just male. And so neither does John's gospel offer us an unambiguously male logos. So whilst logos may be a male term within the classical Greek tradition, John's gospel clearly has in mind another tradition from the Hebrew Bible, known as the wisdom tradition. Other Jewish writers from the same period in the first century make the same move. So the Jewish philosopher Philo of Alexandria uses the Greek word logos synonymously with the Greek word sophia, and that is the Greek word for wisdom, a translation from the Hebrew word for wisdom. And if we turn to our Hebrew Bible, we find in places such as Proverbs chapters 1 to 9, and also in the book of Sirach chapter 24, we find this character called wisdom. And wisdom in the Hebrew tradition is always personified as a woman. And she is presented as the agent of God's communication. Wisdom, Sophia, is God's speech. And when God speaks in the Hebrew tradition, what God speaks is always female. So in the Hebrew Bible, when God speaks salvation and hope and judgment to humanity, God does so through the female form of wisdom. But even more than this, wisdom in the Hebrew tradition is also presented as the agent of God's creation. She, that is wisdom, was in the beginning with God. And she participated with God in the creation of the world. If you don't believe me on this, turn to Proverbs chapter 8, verses 22 to 23. Wisdom is a decisively female image for God and of God's spoken word taking human form. And so when we get to John's gospel, speaking of God's word made flesh, the female image of wisdom is part of that incarnation. 
If God creates humans, male and female, after God's own image, then God's word takes human form as both male and female too. The word that is spoken, the logos of John's gospel, is no more exclusively male than God is exclusively male. And whilst the human being of Jesus may be biologically male, in Jesus are embodied the full diversity of gender, which is reflective of the full glory of God's diversity. And we see this time and time again as we look through the fourth gospel and as we shall do so over the coming months. Jesus consistently subverts the gender norms and expectations of his time. Elizabeth Johnson puts this really well. She says, the gender particularity of Jesus, that is a male human being, does not reveal that God must be imaged exclusively as male. In Jesus Christ, we encounter the mystery of God, who is neither male nor female, but who as the source of both and creator of both in the divine imaged, can in turn be imaged as either. In fact, the very language of God as creator is itself a reflection of God's own gender diversity. The fact that the Hebrew Bible assigns to the female character wisdom, the creative roles of builder, architect, and director, perhaps more traditionally masculine roles, along with the unambiguously female act of creating flesh from flesh, means that these female images for God have to sit alongside any image of God as male to remind us that God is not just the eternal father of all things, but the eternal mother of us all as well. And it's this idea of God as mother that I want us to sit with for a moment now as we explore another aspect of the prologue to John's gospel. Here I want us to turn to the last verse from our reading, verse 18, which in our New Revised Standard Version translation reads as follows. No one has ever seen God. It is God the only Son who is close to the Father's heart who has made him known. And here I have to ask you to forgive me for turning back to the Greek again, but I don't think this is the best translation. And, and just so you know, I'm going to borrow much of what I want to say about this verse from Caroline Lewis's remarkable commentary on John's Gospel. The first issue I have here is with the word son, because the earliest and most reliable manuscripts of the Gospel of John do not include the word son here. It was added later, most likely by scribes, on the basis that the father-son relationship between Jesus and God goes on to become a central theme of the fourth gospel. However, and interestingly for us, that does not seem to have been the original focus here in the prologue. Rather, John was showing his readers that Jesus reveals God's nature in a new and profoundly different way. And at this point in the story, the Logos is God, begotten of God, but not yet gendered, not yet God's son. This is God's word and wisdom, embodied but ungendered, fully human and fully God. And then we come to another translation problem, which our pew Bibles 
uh, tell us that the begotten Logos is close to the Father's heart. But the word heart isn't actually used here. Uh, the, the Greek for the word heart is uh, cardia, where you get you know, things like, you know, cardiac surgery from. Um, John's Gospel knows that word. It uses it elsewhere. It does not use the word heart here. The word that is used in Greek here is really better translated using the word bosom. And I don't want any sniggering at the back. The King James Version rightly translates this, saying the divine word, the logos, is in the bosom of the Father. The reason later translations change this, opting for at the side of the Father or close to the heart of the Father, is because the word bosom has become, in many of our minds, mine too, inextricably linked with the heaving bosoms of period dramas. In other words, it makes us think of a woman's breasts. However, Margaret Miles, in her study of the breast as a religious symbol in art, argues that before the mid 18th century, the primary image for salvation was the infant Jesus nursing at the exposed breast of Mary. If you've ever taken a wander down to the National Gallery and had a look around at some of the medieval art that is on display there, you will have noticed there are an awful lot of classical artworks depicting Mary with an exposed breast nursing the infant Jesus. The believer viewing this picture is being invited to imagine themselves in Jesus' position experiencing salvation coming from the breast, from the bosom of God, who is the nurturer of humanity. This is a big thing in Catholic art, Mary as an embodiment of God, nursing salvation to humans who become children of Mary and children of God after the pattern of Jesus, the child of God. Margaret Miles goes on to suggest that the, it was the advent of medical anatomy and printed pornography, which meant that depictions of the female body moved from being representations of the source of nourishment of life to believers to becoming a detached object of study or desire. And that from the kind of mid 18th century onwards, it became very difficult to artistically visualize God in this way. And so treating and viewing the breast as a religious symbol fell out of favor. And as a result, she notes that the primary representation of salvation in art moved from being the nursing baby Jesus to uh, representations of the crucifixion, and it moved from being the, East, the Christmas story to the Easter story. Translations of John chapter 1 verse 18, published after the mid-18th century, tend to demonstrate this remarkable shift in the perception of the female body. Describing Jesus as nursing at the bosom or breast of God suddenly became sexualized or even sordid. And so Jesus being in the bosom of God became Jesus being by the side of God or close to the heart of God. However, to abandon this image 
in favor of more socially acceptable portrayals is I think problematic because it removes from us a profoundly female image of God that is both scriptural and a significant part of the church's artistic tradition. The meaning conveyed in the image of Jesus at the bosom of God is one of extraordinary tenderness. One would be hard pressed to find a description of a relationship more intimate than the nursing of a child at the child's mother's breast. And the rest of the Gospel of John depends on this description of Jesus' intimate relationship with God. Who God is for the believer as a child of God is that God is their parent, their mother, who provides everything necessary for the sustenance of life. And so God as the life sustainer in the fourth gospel and all of the signs and words of Jesus, the adults that will follow, all of these bear witness to the one who is the source of true life. And this is a female image for God and also for Jesus. To be a disciple of Jesus is to become, like Jesus, a child of God. As we experience God, the nurturing mother, as well as God, the loving father. Interestingly, the only other time in the Gospel of John that the word bosom is used is in chapter 13, verse 23, at the Last Supper story. And here we have the disciple whom Jesus loves resting his head against the bosom of Jesus. And those reading the gospel are encouraged to emulate this disciple and to share with him in the intimacy of his relationship with his saviour. Just as Jesus invites us to share in the intimacy of his relationship with God. And through all of this, we encounter these astonishing images of God and Jesus, both encompassing female characteristics of nurturer and sustainer. And so we get to these final few words from verse 18, where we are told that the only begotten born of God, the Logos spoken into being by God, is the one who is sustained by God's loving nature and is the one who makes God known. This is the revelation of God, and it is a transgendered revelation. The God of the prologue to John's gospel is no alpha male, and the only begotten of God is no macho man. The Logos, the word and wisdom of God spoken into human form and flesh, reveals to us a God who creates humankind after God's own image with gender transcending biology at every turn. And so as we come now towards Christmas, to the point where we encounter God as the dependent child in the manger, I pray that we can discover for each of us, however we experience ourselves in these complex and wonderful bodies of ours, I pray that we can discover for ourselves how deeply and truly 
we have been created in the image of God. This, I believe, is a core message of the Christmas incarnational story. And I think it is good news for each of us in Jesus, the Logos of God made flesh. For the prayer this morning, I've taken some inspiration from Christina Rossetti's Love Came Down at Christmas. And I was delighted to see that it was one of the hymns we sang this morning, so I don't need to read it to you. So let's pray. On Friday, our carols, in our carol service, we celebrated the beautiful music, tree, lights, and a crowd. The love that came down at Christmas when star and angels gave the sign. Lord, as we approach the 25th, we pray that this love might resonate from chapels, churches, and cathedrals around the world. We pray that this love for God and neighbor in Rossetti's lyrics might be the hallmark of our daily lives throughout the year. While celebrations go on, we pray for those who will find this time of the year difficult, those who mourn, those who are alone, those struggling with illness or poor mental health, those who are homeless. At this time in the COVID pandemic, we pray for those who worry about the future and pray that they might remember to enjoy the gift of life each day. We pray for those who've been affected by the tornadoes in America and those in our own country still affected by the aftermath of recent storms. Lord, as we look around the world, we realize how we have marred your creation, environmentally, through war, and by intolerance of the other. We pray for peace. We pray for just and transparent governments. And we pray for a care for the natural world. Help us to look from what is so often appears to be the darkness of our world to the light that shines in the darkness and gives us hope. Amen. So go into God's world with love and hope and joy and faith in your hearts. And may the blessing of Almighty God, Creator, Redeemer and Sustainer be with us all today and forevermore. Amen. <laughs>